Hello and welcome to the IC Companies and Markets podcast. Uh, I'm Mark Robinson, filling in for our editor, John Human, who's uh, away on other duties today. I'm uh, joined, as ever, by our news editor, Bradley Gerard, and also our sectors editor, Harriet Russell, who'll be joining us a little bit later. And we've also got the pleasure of having uh, Simon Thompson in the studio today. And of course, Simon will need no introduction to our uh, subscribers. Uh, it's been a rather interesting week in the news, uh, Bradley. I guess the one takeaway is that we should be careful of politicians that uh, are true to their word. I guess we'll probably stay off Trump and Brexit as best we can in this podcast, but um, they are clearly factors. I didn't mention the Brexit and uh, the white paper that's just come out today. <laughs> you didn't know, but you just have done, and you mentioned politics. Anyway, let's try and keep out of that. Let's try and keep out of it, otherwise... There, really- there is one point uh, worth making about Donald Trump, though. I mean, he's uh, he's obviously... It's been a fillip for the uh, aggregate business in New Mexico and Texas, and his uh, immigration policies has caused uh, no end of uh, controversy. But does this make it more likely now that he's going to pursue his um, promised $1 trillion stimulus program? Uh, I think it will be a little bit more difficult because uh, that will be subject to congressional oversight. But it's quite interesting in terms of the uh, the investment angle. We did highlight, for instance, that the uh, Trump presidency would probably lead to an aggregate increase in defence spending because he's been highly critical of those uh, NATO partners that uh, haven't been complying with the minimum spend rule. But that's another issue. But it's worth keeping on board for investors. Bradley, if we'll just move to the uh, the news section today, uh, aside from the political shenanigans over in the States, Uh, One of the big stories to come through, and I'll bring Harriet on this as well, was uh, the Tesco Booker deal. Uh, Harriet, you've you've had a look at the uh, the pricing for this, and does it uh, does it add up? Well, it's a good question. Uh, This is probably quite old news now in terms of the fact that actually the the deal broke at the end of last week. So we've had some time to kind of digest it all. And the big thing for our readers and our subscribers is that we were on a buy tip with Booker. So it's it's all about sort of the takeout multiple and, and whether we think this is good value for them. Sadly, I think the analysts are in agreement that it's it's not the greatest deal for Booker shareholders long term, both in terms of the premium, it's 12% premium to the closing price, which it, which is not huge. Although, in my opinion, it was always going to be difficult to get a big premium for Booker, given how expensive the shares are regularly. Um, and also, Booker is extremely cash generative with really, really great margins and good profit growth throughout the years. And uh, and we all know that Tesco is still in the midst of a recovery. So in terms of what they'll do with that, um, it's all a bit unclear. What was the uh, main strategic rationale behind the deal? Well, this is another thing that the analysts are sort of scratching their heads over, is that neither side has ever expressed much of an interest in going into what each other does. So Booker has never um, really sort of gone down the whole direct retail route, certainly not on the scale of Tesco. They obviously do have their um, convenience change Budgeons, Londi. Um, mm-hmm. But Tesco has never really expressed a direct interest in going down the wholesale route, which is really what Booker does too. So in terms of a sort of creating a supermarket conglomerate, this, this is almost what's happening. Um, and the analysts are incredibly sceptical about whether, for that reason, it will actually even make its way past regulators. They'll have to probably jump through an awful lot of hoops, including a lot of property disposals. Um, so that's all on the cards as well. And we concur with this, yes? Yeah, I think it will be difficult to get past the CMA. I don't think it will be impossible. Um, 
we were actually talking a lot about the um, SAB deal that's going through with InBev at the moment. And I think it will be a similar situation in that there's going to be an awful lot of overlap. So in t- just in terms yeah, of the I estate... Think that, I think the horse has bolted with that particular sector anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? I think what it could actually throw up for investors in, in other parts of the grocery market, so Morrison's or, or Sainsbury's even, um, is that if disposals are a big part of this deal to get it past regulators, then they could clean up actually. If Morrison's wants to really get back into convenience like it's already hinted it might, there might be some good good properties up for grabs. Well actually while we're on the uh, subject of retail as well, Harriet has penned this week's uh, sector focus with uh, a modicum of help from yours truly and we've been just looking at the retail credit cycle really and uh, proposing perhaps that that might be drawing to a, a, a close now or at least about to hit an inflection point uh, we saw record uh, record growth in november but uh, we just learned recently about december's figures there was, a, there was quite a sharp contraction which uh, which sort of falls uh, into line with what you've written, Harriet. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. Um, in terms of the lending figures, they definitely did contract. And retail sales also contracted in December. However, I always think that the November to December retail sales growth is always a very, very difficult number to actually get a true reading from in terms of the wider macroeconomic picture. Because, of course, November now is chock full of promotional activity with the Black Friday deals in particular Um, and December also has its own little flurry of promotional activity in the run up to Christmas so understanding quite sort of what the appetite for retail and consumer spending is I think is actually a lot more difficult than Christmas numbers used to be Um, there's a lot more sort of going on um, at at the time so it makes it difficult to get a straight read but in terms of the lending figures, we were talking about those yesterday, which had come out sadly after the fact that we, we'd we written this article, although they do largely support what we say, which is that if personal lending starts to contract, um, then obviously people's disposable income and sort of availability of credit, availability of spending um, will also contract. And this might be the big sort of silent killer that no one's actually talking about with retail. With retail at the moment, it's all Brexit-induced sort of consumer downturn. And, and it's a bit of a woolly term because no one really knows what that means. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I guess the main thing anyway, we're, we're heading to uh, reporting season shortly as well. So uh, Harriet will be looking at the transference from the top line through to earnings as well. That's always a, uh, a key metric this time of year. Uh, we might move on and bring you in, uh, Bradley, as well. Uh, there's a couple of other interesting stories this week linked to, uh, well, firstly, Talk Talk. Um, give us a little bit of a rundown there. Yeah, so there's a bit of uh, musical chairs going on at a couple of companies um, in the stock market this week. So you've got Sir Charles Dunstan, who's um, a well-known chap within the telecom sector. He is stepping down as executive chairman at Dixon's Carphone, um, half of which he founded as Carphone Warehouse in 1989, um, to take on the same role at Talk Talk. At the moment, obviously, Talk Talk is run by Baroness Dido Harding, who hasn't had the easiest stint at the at the group. She was criticised quite heavily in 2015 when the company suffered a, a, a hacking, a, a yeah. hacking, yeah, a cyber breach. She's going into um, all, all the same. I said was um, she was focusing more on her public service. I don't quite know what that involves, but. That's what she's going to be doing. And then over at Dixon's Carphone, you've got a former BT chief executive, Lord Livingston, who is taking Sir Charles's current role. So, yeah, a bit of moving and shaking in the, in the sector there. Um, I guess it's very interesting because obviously Sir Charles 
has done a fantastic job at Carphone Warehouse and um, you know his um, influence at Dixon's Carphone, which has been merged for a f- two or three years now, um, has also been been very good as well. I think he will stay on as a senior advisor, which will give some reassurance, I suppose, to Dixon's Carphone shareholders. Um, but it's interesting that he's sort of slowly sort of you know, stepping back slightly from the business. Mm. Poor Dido, though. Poor Dido. Yeah, I mean, she's you know, it's it's just been one of those things. I mean, lo- any company can be the subject of a cyber attack i don't think it would be correct to say that anyone any company is entirely immune it's just the way in which you handle that i mean i remember at the time she was on tv very quickly telling the news outlets that they did sort of communicate this as quickly as they could and not much sort of uh, sensitive information was taken but there was still a sense that it wasn't dealt with as properly as it could have been by talk talk um so that's been a bit of a problem, um, and also they're they're facing a very competitive uh, market at the moment. I mean, sort of the whole um, the whole telecom sector. You know, people are demanding more from their television offering, their internet offering. They want bundles, packages, and it's just becoming a a very very tough sector to operate in. Well, yes, I think uh, Megan Box will be talking about that very issue in the next uh, couple of issues, I believe. Uh, speaking of which, a new spotlight this week has been put together by Megan, and with the uh, Six Nations starting this weekend, it's uh, topical. Uh, it's entitled, Has Live Televised Sport Had Its Day? What is Megan covering here? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting thing, actually. It's a great article. It's definitely worth reading the whole thing and looking at the uh, the fantastic chart that Megan's put together there. It just really looks at the... Um, really quite insane amounts that companies such as Sky, BT, um, Satanta Sports, etc. spend on the rights to broadcast things like football matches and rugby matches, cricket matches, what, what have you. And we've got some really, really good figures here from, from the Premier League, um, which just kind of show the remarkable rise in the cost of buying the rights to, to show these fixtures. Sky's broadcast the Premier League since its inception in 1992, and back then, it paid thirty-eight million pounds for the rights to the season, whereas today that sum would get you just three games. Yeah. So the just the the rapid inflation in that is remarkable, and I guess it's been helped by the fact that BT well, Sport. I do, I do remember at the time that was seen as an extraordinary amount to pay for TV. Well, it, it absolutely was, and I guess I mean you know that's not the only the only thing that's inflated by an extraordinary amount in the past what twenty thirty years in football. We players' wages as well. I mean, it's all becoming a very very expensive thing to be involved in in, in any sense whatsoever. Um, but obviously, as an investor in something like BT and Sky, it's very very. It's a key part of what they do. So it's very important to kind of understand the amount they are spending on this and also actually how, much, how, worth, how worthwhile it is because actually last year there was quite a dip in some of the viewing figures for football. There might be sort of things that were specific to that year. Such as, you know, if there's an Olympics one or something, then maybe you know, sport viewing falls. But you've also got interesting trends such as the um, occasional streaming of games on Twitter for free, which I guess people like Sky and BT maybe use as a bit of a carrot to get people watching a game. If they really like it, then they're going to have to cough up and pay to watch more of it. But there's a danger, I suppose, that you could get some really b- the big US um, companies who are now becoming huge content providers and creators like Netflix and even Amazon. I mean, if they turn their attention to sport, I mean, how much would they be willing to pay? And well, exactly. Would that squeeze out Sky and BT? I think that's the basis of Megan's upcoming uh, feature as well, just looking at that uh, and linking with change uh, models of ownership generally. Look at uh, products like Spotify, for instance, and the fact that nobody 
really buys their automobiles anymore. They tend to lease them. But anyway, we, we can all look forward to that. Uh, a couple of other interesting uh, news uh, stories this week that we won't go into in any detail. Emma Powell has been looking at uh, why wealth managers uh, justify their, their punchy ratings. And also uh, Alex uh, Newman, our resources specialist, uh, has gone over uh, Shell's deal to sell off their North Sea assets for uh, just under $5 billion. Uh, I guess the main thing about that is they're shoring up or giving themselves every chance to be able to sort of maintain that uh, amazing dividend record of theirs. Well, yeah, that's what it's all about, really. And they, obviously their disposal program has been well flagged, but it hasn't actually been that successful to date. So this deal, although sort of, I mean, not small, it's a fair size in the grand scheme of what they want to sell. Um, you know, it, it's obviously a, a step in the right direction, which investors will be pleased about, especially those who, as you say, rely on its dividends. And um, just, yeah, you, you mentioned um, Emma's piece on the wealth managers that also a really interesting sector at the moment, given obviously um, we've had stock market highs in the US and the UK recently. So she's just really analysing the question of whether wealth managers are, are worth the demanding premium they're trading on given market highs. And as you alluded to at the start of the podcast, with their politics being a, an uncertain beast at the moment and the potential effects that can have on stock markets being invested in something which is geared into the markets is um, you know, something that people need to be aware of. Well, so Simon Thompson will be in a moment to talk about some other uh, punchy ratings elsewhere, but uh, I think that's about it for the news this week. I actually, uh, It's interesting looking at the economics pages this week because Chris Dillow has been looking at retail markets as well, which uh, feeds into to Harriet's piece too, so that's worth, worth, worth a look at. I guess, yeah, before we pass on to our own stock picker, uh, Simon Thompson, um, one thing that is interesting as well that caught my eye this week was um, Neil Woodford's launch of a, um, another fund at his um, his investment house. Um, what what I find interesting about it is that it's going to be a high income fund, so it's, it's targeting a slightly higher yield than his current fund. But what's interesting about it is that he ran an income and a high income fund at Invesco Perpetual, where he used to work. So he's kind of more closely mimicking the product set that he ran at Invesco. And when he opened his income fund um, back in 2014 the size of the Invesco income fund fell quite significantly. So it'd be very interesting to see if that trend is repeated when um, Mr. Woodford's higher income fund is not called that, but it'll target a higher income when that launches. It's interesting if that happens again. Yes, certainly our readers will be interested to take a look at that as well. Actually, I do uh, note in seven days that you mentioned that uh, Greek bond yields have uh, spiked again as well, Uh, but we can cover that in in another another time, another place. But we'll bring in uh, Simon Thompson now. Great to see you again, Simon. I mean, in um, your comment piece this week, uh, it's going to attract a fair bit of interest, I imagine, because you've uh, looked at a, a market strategy uh, note published by uh, Gresham House that uh, draws some parallels with your own philosophy on investment. Uh, yeah, th- this note dropped into my inbox um, a few weeks ago, and um, there's some striking similarities between the investment strategy being pursued by these very smart fund managers and uh, what I'm actually doing as well. Um, Their contention is um, that the rotation from growth stocks to uh, value stocks, which started at the end of last year, is actually going to gain traction this year. And uh, it's not without foundation, this, um, this view. Firstly, since 2011, which if you remember, uh, the Eurozone was in crisis, Greece was about to be thrown out of the EU, the euro could have um, collapsed. Um, and then pursuant of that, we had um, some pretty weak economic figures from the Eurozone and um, some countries were flatlining and going into recession. But during that period, interest rates, um, long bond yields were falling. And by the summer of last year, um, Post the Brexit vote, um, 
German 10-year bond yields were actually negative. Um, 51 basis points for 10-year bond yields in the UK, 130 basis points in the US. So these were record low bond yields. Now, what happened between 2011 and 2016 was that investors, uh, with all this cheap money swirling around, were pushing their cash into growth stocks. um, And it wasn't because of the earnings growth of these companies. It was was okay, the earnings growth, but it was multiple expansion. So they were paying a higher and higher price. And Gresham House's uh, fund managers, their contention is that it's actually hit a peak. Yeah, And from this point onwards, the way you're going to make money from the stock market is focusing on value stocks. And within that segment, small cap value stocks. And to put this into perspective, in terms of the ratings, the FTSE All Share Index forward earnings multiple is 15.5 for 2017. But if we look at on a cash profit to enterprise value basis, that's market value plus debt, net debt or less net cash. Um, the FTSE All Share Index is trading on 10 times uh, cash profits to enterprise value. Companies worth over £250 million pounds are trading on over 12 times cash profits to their enterprise value. Those worth less than £250 million, pounds, so the small cap minnows in the uh, stock market, seven times cash profits. So basically, we've got a value theme here that there's an undervaluation of value stocks compared with um, growth stocks. And... Um, I, I think these fund managers are right. Yeah. So what was the, the psychology, do you think, when people were, okay, you were saying that um, interest rates had, had hit sort of record lows and people were actually prepared to pay a higher multiple for these growth stocks? Well, the momentum strategies as well, Mark, uh, So, which worked fantastically well for periods of time. Um, so you're either following companies that are, share prices are doing well or doing badly and shorting them. Um, so there's momentum trades actually driving these these higher multiples people were willing to pay. Uh, but the, the key thing to remember is that if you buy a growth company, so that's basically a high um, price-to-book value company, you're actually discounting back the profits or the cash flows that company's making a certain discount rate. Mm-hmm. And the higher long bond yields go, the higher the discount rate, you're actually discounting those cash flows back to actually get a present value of those cash flows. And my point is, given the movement in long bond yields that we've seen since last summer, then people are going to be more reticent about paying high earnings multiple for growth stocks than they were previously. And so we've seen that transference over to value stocks where at, the, at the fourth quarter of last year. At, at the end of last year, we, we saw the outperformance of growth versus value. This isn't just in the UK, by the way. This is MSCI, World Index, growth versus value. Um, So it's across the board. Um, But no, the the outperformance of growth versus value has actually um, stopped and value is actually now doing better. Well, you've identified um, uh, a few uh, companies that fall within that category there. I mean, what, what what do they share in common or did you find any commonalities? Well, well, this is another theme that the fund managers at Gresham House have some commonality with my own strategies is I, I look for cash generative companies, high earnings yields, so low P ratios, but with potential for above average earnings growth. So the earnings, future earnings of those companies are being mispriced if they actually deliver on that earnings growth. Okay. I'm looking for companies that um, special situations where they can actually return capital to shareholders. 
And once they actually do so, investors will actually focus on the remaining businesses and the earnings power of those businesses. Uh, so that can be a catalyst for re-rating. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so there's key things in this article that I actually pinpoint if you're actually a stock picker um, to actually look out for if this growth-to-value rotation gains traction this year. Okay, that's certainly one to keep an eye on. And actually, we'll just move, uh, segue on to uh, the main feature of this week, and it's it's obviously one that our, our readership will be uh, looking forward to getting a hold of, and it's uh, your bargain shares uh, issue. So, what were your findings? What were your findings here? Just to explain to the readers, what this portfolio, which we do every year at this time of year, is based on, it's based on the findings of Benjamin Graham, who's known as the grandfather of value investing. He actually taught Warren Buffett, the um, sage of Omaha, the most successful investor in the world that we've ever seen. Uh, But Benjamin Graham, in a book called The Intelligent Investor, which was written many moons ago, and I'd advise anyone into investing to actually read it. Um, you can still buy it now. Um, what, what he said was that in order to make above-average returns by following a balance sheet approach to investing, what you need to do is screen out companies where you can actually buy all the fixed assets for nothing. So I basically look at the current assets of a company, deduct all the liabilities, and try and have those assets, net assets, greater than the market value. It's as simple as that. And this strategy has stood the test of time. It's over a one-year period. The first year of these bargain share portfolios over the last 18 years has delivered an average return of around about 20%. It's beaten the FTSE all share in that one year 14 out of 18 times. Some years it's produced thumping returns. Um, Last year, it underperformed, but it still did it okay. It did 11%. Um, What makes it interesting this year is that this growth-to-value rotation that I'm talking about, I've actually focused on that. So I've actually focused on cash-rich companies, so very little doubt. Only one of them has debt on the balance sheet, and that could be easily repaid, that have potential to grow earnings far better than the market is actually anticipating. So there's actually an earnings surprise in, with some of these companies for the investment case. But in four, if not five of the cases, you're actually getting the fixed assets of the business for nothing. Okay, we, we, given, that these, uh, given that these companies that you describe here have obviously sound balance sheets or extremely strong balance sheets in the face of it, why, why are they ignored in the market then? Their market value for starters, looking at the list of companies that have actually targeted, the highest market capitalization is 146 million, mm-hmm. the lowest 33. Some of these companies will be below the radar for institutions, for small investors. It's not a question of liqui- liquidity then? No, I've actually focused on companies you can easily trade. Yeah. Um, so it's not a liquidity issue. The bid offer spreads are actually tight enough to make it worthwhile actually dealing in these companies. Okay. So you're not losing a lot on the bid offer spread. No, yeah. that, that's not an issue. It's more of a case these companies have fallen out of favour or have been out of favour and are recovering. So I I, I focused on ones that I believe, on average for this portfolio, that fair value for this portfolio is 30% above the current prices. Yeah, I've I've, uh, without giving anything away on the specific companies themselves, I've focused on one that I'm reasonably well attuned with and I can certainly say I'm, I'm surprised that the market's overlooked it for quite so long. But actually, we'll get on to that. Was there any particular sectors that you found were offer value in this regard? 
I mean, the oil and gas sector still does. I, I probably looked at 10 or 12 oil and gas companies' cash-rich balance sheets. I passed over 10 of them. I selected two, one of which is trading in line with cash, has done a farm-out deal, has got a free carry on a drilling campaign which will start in less than 12 months' time and has got a licence on the neighbouring area from a certain government. And a highly prospective area as well, I believe. Very prospective. Yeah. And um, if if the drilling, on which it's got a free carry, by the way, and it's got a cash-rich balance sheet, it's trading just below cash, the share price, if that drilling campaign hits pay dirt... It's a share price that could double or triple. Yeah, cheap barrels as well, I believe. It is. I don't want to give too much away. You're going to have to buy the magazine. <laughs> yeah, no, but, buy the um, magazine. To listen to um, this. That, that's, that, that's one company. There's another company, and it, it took me the best part of 10, 12 hours in this company to get to grips with what's actually gone on, which is why investors have missed it. It's had a capital return. It's sold off businesses. It's paid tax. It's slimmed down. Um, I think it's a sitting duck to be taken over. It's going to produce results probably late February, early March. And when it does so, it will reveal, if my sums are right, and I'm 99.99% certain it is, um, that cash in the balance sheet is actually twice the share price. Goodness. Goodness. There's there's another company. um, It's an investment trust, which is unusual for me to actually include an investment trust. But this this investment trust is trading on a 21% discount to net assets. Um, It's got no debt. It's got half the fund invested in blue chip S&P 500 and NASDAQ listed tech companies. It's got all the fangs. So that's Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, uh, Google. It's got Apple, uh, Yahoo. Um, So it's got highly liquid investments, but investors have overlooked it because the market capitalisation is only £63 million or so. And if you think in terms of um, sector orientation, there's upside in the big tech giants. Mm. Um, And having gone through what the fund managers believe in the strategy that they're employing, I I think there is, um, then there's not any scope for upside to the constituent companies that they're holding – but also for that gap, the discount to, to net asset value yeah. to actually narrow yeah. as well. There's an, another company, um, is a media company. I can't give too much away, otherwise and people actually realise what it is. But a media <laughs> company that's got assets in Africa has done some very smart deals to divest its balance sheet. And if I'm right, the remaining businesses, which are highly profitable, they're earning something like, in sterling terms, using current exchange rates, something like £23 million a year worth of cash profits. These businesses are effectively net of cash on the balance sheet being valued at about two times cash profits. Mm-hmm. I've found a company listed on AIM um, that's trading its market capitalization is just above its cash balance. Despite the fact it's got profitable businesses, it's restructured, it's taken out costs, it's got new management who've been buying the shares as well, by the way. And um, it's, it's trading as something like three to four times cash profits with potential for this year for recovery in profits. Um, and that, that's basically what Benjamin Graham says. That's, he wants a margin of safety built into the price that you're paying for these companies in the first place so that when trading actually improves, 
people will actually recognise the improved trading, pay a higher earnings multiple for these companies, and recognise the value in the balance sheet too. So you get a double whammy. A double whammy, yeah. For your money. It. Well, I looked at this. What I found interesting was only really probably two companies, if I'm honest, that I could have told you what what they do. So I guess. There is some hard work to be done here to find these shares. There is a strategy to do it, but it's not just dead simple, is it? There has to, you have to do a bit of work to uh, unearth these types of stocks. No, absolutely, Bradley. I probably put more work into this portfolio than any other one that I've ever done for the IC. In terms of hours, we're looking between 100 and 110 hours worth of equity research and writing on this this feature. It's a, it's a mammoth feature. It's about 13,500 words, 14 pages in the magazine. It's, it's one of the biggest features we, we've ever done. So you know all this for £4.90? It's, it's a bargain price, like, like the shares. Like the shares themselves. Well, actually, Simon, uh, I think that's just about done us here because if you talk any more, people will be able to actually guess these companies won't go out and buy the magazine. But uh, thanks very much. It's absolutely fascinating, uh, Peter and uh, Bradley and I are just going upstairs to ring our brokers now. <laughs> Uh, yes, hopefully uh, next week we'll see the return of our sainted editor, uh, John Human. But uh, I commend this week's magazine, particularly because that bargain uh, shares feature, absolutely fascinating. Only £4.90p at uh, all respectable news agents. Uh, there's a host of reading in there. But uh, until next week, thanks very much. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.